My beloved brethren and sisters, we welcome you most warmly to this general conference, which has become a great world conference of the Church. These proceedings will be heard and seen across this nation and Canada and in much of the remainder of the world. I think there is nothing to compare with it. I commend and thank all who have to do with the complicated logistics of this great undertaking. We are met to worship the Lord, to declare His divinity and His living reality. We are met to reaffirm our love for Him and our knowledge of His love for us. No one, regardless of what he or she may say, can diminish that love. There are some who try. For instance, there are some of other faiths who do not regard us as Christians. That is not important. How we regard ourselves is what is important. We acknowledge without hesitation that there are differences between us. Were this not so, there would have been no need for a restoration of the gospel. President Packer and Elder Ballard recently spoke of this in other settings. I hope we do not argue over this matter. There is no reason to debate it. We simply quietly and without apology testify that God has revealed Himself and His beloved Son in opening this full and final dispensation of His work. We must not become disagreeable as we talk of doctrinal differences. There is no place for acrimony, but we can never surrender or compromise that knowledge which has come to us through revelation and the direct bestowal of keys and authority under the hands of those who held them anciently. Let us never forget that this is a restoration of that which was instituted by the Savior of the world. It is not a reformation of perceived false practice and doctrine that may have developed through the centuries. We can respect other religions and must do so. We must recognize the great good they accomplish. We must teach our children to be tolerant and friendly toward those not of our faith. We can and do work with those of other religions in the defense of those values which have made our civilization great and our society distinctive. For instance, there recently came to my office a Protestant minister who is a most effective leader in the unending battle against pornography. We are grateful for him. We join with him and his associates. We give financial support to his organization. We can and do work with those of other religions in various undertakings in the everlasting fight against social evils which threaten the treasured values which are so important to all of us. These people are not of our faith, but they are our friends, neighbors, and co-workers in a variety of causes. We are pleased to lend our strength to their efforts. But in all of this, there is no doctrinal compromise. There not, need not be and must not be on our part. But there is a degree of fellowship as we labor together. As we carry forward our distinctive mission, we work under a mandate given us by the risen Lord who has spoken in this last and final dispensation. This is His unique and wonderful cause. We bear testimony and witness of Him.
But we need not do so with arrogance or self-righteousness. As Peter expressed it, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That we might show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. A holier-than-thou attitude is not becoming to us. I am in receipt of a letter from a man in our community who is not a member of the Church. In it he says that his little daughter has been ostracized by her schoolmates who are Latter-day Saints. He sets forth another instance of a child who, it is alleged, had a religious medal ripped from his neck by an LDS child. I hope this is not true. If it is, I apologize to those who have been offended. Let us rise above all such conduct and teach our children to do likewise. Let us be true disciples of the Christ, observing the golden rule, doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. Let us strengthen our own faith and that of our children while being gracious to those who are not of our faith. Love and respect will overcome every element of animosity. Our kindness may be the most persuasive argument for that which we believe. Now one other matter. A week ago I was in Palmyra, New York. I there dedicated two buildings. One was a restoration of the small log home in which the Joseph Smith Sr. family first lived in that area. It was in this humble home that the 14-year-old Joseph determined to go into the nearby grove to ask of God and experienced an incomparable vision of the Father and the Son. It was in this home that Moroni the angel appeared to the boy Joseph, calling him by name and telling him that God had a work for him to do and that his name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. How could a farm boy, largely without formal education, have dared to say such a thing? And yet it has all come to pass and will continue to increase as this restored gospel is taught across the world. While in Palmyra, I also dedicated the E.B. Grandin Building, where the first edition of the Book of Mormon was printed in 1829 and 1830. It was a bold undertaking to print what Mr. Grandin first regarded as a fraud and to print an edition which was of 5,000, which was very large for the time. I'm pleased to remind you that since that time, we have printed more than 88 million of this remarkable volume. I am grateful that we have this old building purchased by a generous member of the Church and donated to the Church. Its very presence confirms the validity of the book, this remarkable testament of the Son of God. Who, having read it, can honestly refute its divine origin? Critics may try to explain it away. The harder they try, the more plausible becomes the true account of its coming forth as a voice speaking from the dust. How grateful I am for the testimony 
with which God has blessed me of the divine calling of Joseph Smith, of the reality of the first vision, of the restoration of the priesthood, of the truth of this, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so, my beloved brothers and sisters, let us rejoice together now as we celebrate with appreciation the wondrous doctrines and practices which has come, which have come as a gift from the Lord in this most glorious time of His work. This is the Easter season when we remember His glorious resurrection of which we bear witness. Let us ever be grateful for these most precious gifts and privileges and act well our part as those who love the Lord. I invite you to listen to the words which will go forth from this pulpit to be delivered by those who have been called as your servants. May we be blessed, I humbly pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Brother Hay. My dear brothers and sisters, I'm grateful to join with you again in a general conference of the Church. I pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I'd like to consider with you the importance of mortal life as time of preparation. As Amulek, the Book of Mormon prophet, testified, This life is the time for men to prepare to beat God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have a special understanding of the eternal nature of our souls. We know that we had a premortal existence. We accepted our Heavenly Father's great plan of happiness and chose to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Principles we adopted and for which we contended were, first, agency, the ability to choose good or evil, second, progress, the ability to learn and become like our Heavenly Father, and third, faith faith in our Father's plan and in the Atonement of Jesus Christ that enables us to return to the presence of God. Consequently, we were permitted to enter mortal life. Concerning mortal life, the Master said, We will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. We understand that we still live in a post-mortal life of infinite duration and that we determine the kind of life it will be by our thoughts and actions in mortality. Mortality is very brief but immeasurably important. We learn from the scriptures that the course of the Lord is one eternal round and that God knows all things, being from everlasting to everlasting. We are also eternal beings. Our presence here on earth is an essential step in our loving Heavenly Father's plan of happiness for his children. We are that we might have joy, the Prophet Joseph taught, that happiness is the object and design of our existence. If we pursue the path of virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all the commandments of God, right now, this very moment is part of our eternal progression towards returning 
with our families to the presence of our Father in heaven. President Gordon B. Hinckley taught, We are here in this life with a marvelous inheritance, a divine endowment. How different this world would be if every person realized that all of his actions have eternal consequences. How much more satisfying our years may be if we recognize that we form each day the stuff of which eternity is made. Close quote. That understanding helps us to make wise decisions in the many choices of our daily lives. Seeing life from an eternal perspective helps us focus our limited mortal energies on the things that matter most. We can avoid wasting our lives laying up for uh, ourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. We can lay up treasures in heaven and not trade our eternal spiritual birthright. This is the day of our mortal probation. We might compare our eternal journey to a race of three laps around the track. We have completed the first lap successfully and have made wonderful progress. We have started on the second lap. Can you imagine a world-class runner stopping along the track at this point to pick flowers or chase a rabbit that crossed his path? Yet this is what we are doing when we occupy our time with worldly pursuits that do not move us closer to the third lap toward eternal life, the greatest of all the gifts of God. In both his old and new world ministries, the Savior commanded, Be ye therefore perfect. A footnote explains that the Greek word translated as perfect means complete, finished, fully developed. Our Heavenly Father wants us to use this mortal probation to fully develop ourselves, to make the most of our talents and abilities. If we do so, when final judgment comes, we will experience the joy of standing before our Father in Heaven in the final judgment as complete and finished sons and daughters, polished by obedience and worthy of the inheritance that He has promised to the faithful. The Savior has set the example for us and commands that the works which we have seen Him do that shall we also do. I have always been impressed by Moroni's powerful invitation that he offered as a valedictory admonition at the end of his earthly ministry. Come unto Christ and be perfected in Him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. Alma explained to his followers that baptism requires that we serve others, that we bear one another's burdens, mourn with those that mourn, comfort those that stand in need of comfort and stand as witnesses of God at all times. We cannot work out our salvation alone. We cannot return to the presence of our Father in Heaven without helping our brothers and sisters. Once we understand that we are all literally brothers and sisters in the family of God, we should also feel an obligation for one another's welfare and show our love through deeds of kindness and concern. Charity, the pure love of Christ, must motivate us in our associations with every one of our Heavenly Father's children. As we progress and become more like the Savior, we can strengthen our every group with whom we associate, including families and friends. The Lord places us in these communities of saints where we can learn and apply gospel principles to our everyday lives. These groups are at the same time both a school, a proving ground, and a laboratory where we both learn and do as we practice living the gospel. 
Writing to the Corinthians, Paul pleaded for unity in the Church and for members to serve one another, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice. We are only as strong as each member of the body or Church of Christ. We should do all we can to help every member realize his or her divine potential as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In giving our service to others, we need to remember President Hinckley's counsel to extend the hand of fellowship and to share our love with the hundreds of thousands who join the Church as converts each year. The greatest tool the Lord has to welcome new converts warmly and keep them in the right way is the love each of us extends by taking the time to introduce ourselves to new members, learning their names, listening to them, and learning something about them." Close quote. Joining a new Church and starting a new life is never easy and often frightening. Each of us needs to be the friend that every new member needs to remain active and faithful in the Church. As friendships are built, new converts are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God. When people are baptized, their names are taken and added to the Church membership records that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God. Referring to the miraculous change that occurs in the lives of new members when they are properly nourished by the good word of God, Elder John A. Witso observed that very common, ordinary people who accept the gospel from the lips of some humble Mormon missionary become so changed by those enlightening truths of the gospel that they are not the same people any longer. Close quote. As we progress through mortality, we may make mistakes and get off course. If we should continue in our errors, we get farther and farther from where we ought to be. We can compare our lives with the flight of a spaceship. When its motor is started up, its trajectory is monitored precisely. Any deviation from its decreed course is, correctly, is corrected immediately. Even a fraction of a degree off course would carry it many miles from its destination if not corrected. The longer the correction is delayed, the greater will be the required adjustment. Can you imagine how far off course we can become without course corrections? The Lord has provided for us prophets, scriptures, parents, and other wise leaders to teach us the course we should be following. They can help us monitor our progress and correct the direction we are going when necessary. Much the same as tracking stations monitor a satellite's progress and keep it on the right path. Our course on earth is so important, it is determined by the decisions we make each day. We cannot separate our thoughts and actions now from their effects on the future. We might ask ourselves if we merit the blessings of our Father's plan with the life we are now living. The days of our probation are numbered. But none of us knows the number of those days. Each day of preparation is precious. I have watched the skilled hands of Navajo women in the American Southwest as they weave intricate patterns in beautiful rugs. They select and prepare each colored thread of yarn very carefully and insert it in precisely the right place. 
They weave the varied colors artistically into the fabric of the whole to form rugs that eventually conform to the preconceived plan of their creators. In much the same way, we weave into the fabric of our lives the pattern that we will present as our finished product. Our moral lives are woven each day as we add our deeds into something intricately beautiful following the Master's design plan when we make wrong choices. We must live with a blotch in the fabric of our souls or retrace our steps through repentance and remove errant threads we have woven into our character and replace them with the finer threads that our Maker intended for us to use. The tapestry of our lives is being patterned now. The Lord referred to our life before mortality as our first estate and promised each of us that they who keep their first estate shall be added upon, and they who keep not their first estate shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate, and they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. Procrastination and indecision can hamper our efforts to prepare for the life after mortality. President Joseph Felix Smith said, Procrastination, as it may be applied to gospel principles, is the thief of eternal life, which is life in the presence of the Father and the Son. In the Book of Mormon we read Amulek's plea, I beseech of you that ye do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For that same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time that you go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. It has been said that life is such a precious gift. It should be guarded from needless dilution. Each day is not just another day, but more like a falling drop of water, a golden moment of lifespan added to an increasingly rich pool of living. Indecision can immobilize or paralyze us, hindering our preparation in mortality. We can become like the people of Nineveh, whom the Lord described to Jonah as persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. The Apostle James observed that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. An old Swiss saying describes such indecision in these words, With one foot in, with one foot out, you can't be in, you can't be out. Not warm, not cold, not square, not round, more poor than poor and always bound. For such a man will never know where to begin or where to go. We cannot be double-minded in our relationships with husband or wife, parents or children. Are we going to savor the enjoyment of our children after they are a little older and we are not so busy? What about the valued friendships that fade because of the thoughtful, lengthy letters we plan to write but never finish and send? Are we faithful in going to our temples regularly? Consider the books we are going to read, the impulses to kindness we are going to act upon, the good causes we are going to espouse. Are we always packing our bags with the things we value most in life but never leave, leave on the trip? Does tomorrow never come? Let us resolve to begin to live today, not tomorrow, but today, this hour while we yet have time. We know that death is a necessary transition. It will come sooner or later to each of us. Our mortal bodies will return to earth 
and our spirits will return to the spirit world. By virtue of the Savior's atoning sacrifice, we all will be resurrected. Each of us will stand before the judgment bar of the great Jehovah and be rewarded according to our deeds of mortality. If we make every earthly decision with this judgment in mind, we will have used our mortal probation wisely, and its days will give us peace in this life and eternal life in the world to come. I testify that these doctrines are true. You can know the gospel truth by confirmation of the Spirit whispering to your soul. The Lord said, If any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The Savior lives and loves each of us. This I know with all my heart. We are children of a loving Father in heaven who has raised up the prophet Joseph Smith to restore the fullness of the gospel. Our Father in heaven has also blessed us with a living prophet in our day to guide us back to his loving arms. President Gordon B. Hinckley is that prophet. I shall testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Some years ago, when I was working in a different organization, our personnel director, a devout Catholic, came into my office with his secretary, Darlene. I could readily see that Darlene was not there of her own free will and would rather be elsewhere. The personnel director's words to me were, Will you please tell Darlene that Mormons are Christian? I've been arguing with her for over half an hour, and I cannot convince her of that fact. She needs to hear it from you. My first concern was, have I done something in my own life that would cause Darlene to question my faith in and loyalty to the Savior? But then I quickly recognized that her doubts were not directed to me personally. After inviting them to sit down, I asked Darlene why she thought we were not Christians. Her answer was that her minister had told her so. I asked her if she knew the official name of the Church. She did not. She knew the Church only by the name of Mormon. I explained the name to be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and then asked, if it did not seem like a rather odd name for a Church that supposedly was not Christian. I next asked my Catholic friend if he would explain from our many hours of discussions on airplanes, in hotels, at dinners, and during other private occasions, some of the things he had learned about us as they related to Christ, His teachings, and our beliefs. He explained them with perhaps more credibility than I could have done. Darlene's response was that her minister had told her that we did not believe in the Bible, which we had replaced with the Book of Mormon. I replied by sharing the Eighth Article of Faith. We believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. I then explained that the Book of Mormon was further scripture complementing the Bible and providing another witness of Christ. It expounded and clarified many of, the, of Christ's most sacred and important teachings. Her response was, 
My minister says the Book of Mormon cannot contain the teachings of Christ because there could be no more, no more revelations after the death of the apostles. Thus, no more scripture after the Bible. My query to her was, at a time of such rapid change in a turbulent and troubled world with so many perplexing problems, wouldn't it make you wonder why a loving father would cease to communicate with his children? whom he loved enough that he sacrificed his only begotten son for them. The discussion continued for the next 15 to 20 minutes with my attempting to explain our literal interpretation of the Atonement, the Resurrection, and other important doctrines of the Savior. It ended with the strongest testimony I could give of a loving father and a willing son. At the conclusion of our discussion, her response was the same. My minister has spoken, and that's the way it is. And that is the way the matter was left, leaving me both disappointed and somewhat bothered by the misunderstanding. It is interesting how the lack of understanding by a few can innocently or purposely misguide many. Judging another's heart and conscience is probably best left to the righteous judge of us all. Surely the final determination as to who is a true disciple of Christ will be left to the Savior who said, I am the Good Shepherd and know my sheep. After being introduced to a few basic doctrines of the Church, the Reverend Charles Taylor, a minister friend of mine, called to tell me of his enlightened understanding of the gospel. With some excitement, he stated, When you take the time to study the teachings and the doctrines of the Mormon Church, it becomes clear that Mormons are truly Christians. In fact, I have never met more Christ-like people than the Mormons I have recently become acquainted with. I responded that I would be interested in hearing his further feelings and understanding after he had a chance to read the Book of Mormon and could witness its testimony and teachings of the Savior. His response I am already reading the Book of Mormon, and it is wonderful to read. It has expanded my understanding of Christ and His mission. I feel a wonderful spirit as I read it. My friend took the time to learn for himself before forming a judgment. He did not try to influence others based on lack of understanding or misconception. This seemed responsible to me, seeking understanding before judging and certainly before trying to persuade another to one's own misconceptions. To my friend Darlene, may I again point out that Jesus Christ is central to every doctrine, every ordinance, and every principle of the Church. As its very name suggests, the Book of Mormon testifies of Jesus Christ, giving emphasis and clarification to his teachings. The Book of Mormon prophet Nephi declared to the world, And we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for remission of their sins. Nephi further stated, There is none other name given under heaven, save it be this Jesus Christ, of which I have spoken, whereby man can be saved. Over the years, I have pondered this experience with my friend Darlene, bothered by its conclusion. 
However, I have since concluded that viewpoints based on misunderstandings and fallacious teaching should not trouble me, except as I have a responsibility to attempt to clarify such misconceptions. The real issue is not how others define us, but how the Savior defines us. So the question is, how does he personally view each and every one of us? Therefore, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we need to focus our concern with our own relationship to our Heavenly Father and the Savior Jesus Christ. In the last moments of my father's righteous and exemplary life, with all of the strength he could muster, he uttered in hardly an audible voice, I only hope the Savior will find me worthy to call me his friend. Oh, to be called a friend of the Savior. As my father yearned, I also wondered, would Christ count me as one of his sheep? Would he see me striving to exemplify his teachings and live his divine principles? Would he call me a disciple? Would he call me a friend? This is what really matters. The Savior gave the criteria for his friendship in the 15th chapter of John, in which he states, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. He further gave the acid test when he said, Ye shall know them by their fruits. This is how we will all be judged, by our fruits, good or bad. In the final judgment, if our fruits so warrant, we will be invited to sit on the right hand of God. There, I believe, will be his friends. So if we, even in our weak and stumbling way, are earnestly striving to live a Christ-like life, how others choose to characterize us should be of little consequence. The responsibility for our Christianity is ours. Others may characterize us as they will, but the true and righteous judge will judge us as we are. Our discipleship is for us to determine, not someone else. When we were baptized, we each voluntarily took upon ourselves the name of Christ. The taking of his name upon ourselves results in a covenant to follow his teachings. We have a chance to renew our covenants and take inventory of our daily lives every time we partake of the sacrament. We can all ask ourselves the standard questions. Are we praying daily? personally and as a family? Are we reading the scriptures? Are we holding our family home evenings and paying our tithing? The list can go on. But the real question is, are we becoming a disciple? Are we becoming a friend? Alma queried, Have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received his image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? The bottom line is the change in our hearts, a change that results in a change of living. Alma's subsequent questions went beyond the general to the specific. He queried, Have you walked keeping yourself blameless before God? If you were called to die at this time, have you been sufficiently humble? Are you stripped of pride? Today we might add to these questions. Do we love our brothers as ourselves? 
Are we totally honest in our business dealings and other relationships? Are we putting our families first before our own self-interest? Have we done any good in the world today? Are we following the admonition and the teachings of the prophet? Yes, the question is, do our outward devotions translate into a Christ-like life? It is not enough that we just talk of Christ, preach of Christ, or even prophesy of Christ. We must live of Christ, for it is by our own personal day living, personal day, everyday living that the Savior will determine whether we are one of his true disciples, a friend. To the darlings of the world, I would hope that our fruits would merit the term Christian. And to us who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I would hope that our deeds, our actions, our hearts, and our countenances exemplify the teachings of the Savior and display our gratitude for his great sacrifice for all of us. To those who wonder how Christ fits into our theology and our personal lives, we testify that Christ is the Redeemer of the world. He's our Lord, our light, and our Savior. He was ordained from on high to descend below all, to suffer above all. He is the focus of all that we teach and all we do. As a Church, we are individual Christians trying to prove our discipleship to the Savior. It is not an institutional matter. It is a personal matter. It is my testimony that he lived, he died, and he lives. He atoned for our sins. It is my prayer that we will each live our lives and make our devotions in such a way as to be recognizable clearly by non-member and non-member alike as true disciples of the living Christ. But more important, I pray that we may be so recognized by the true and righteous judge of us all, even the Lord Jesus Christ. What greater reward can any of us receive than to be acknowledged by him as a true and faithful servant? a disciple, a friend. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. While teaching the Nephite people, the Savior affirmed the words of the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied of Israel in the latter days. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord. The Savior then revealed one of the ways in which his covenant of peace would be preserved for the righteous in the last days. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. These words of the Savior are the theme for primary and are fulfilled in the stated purpose of primary, to teach children the gospel of Jesus Christ and help them learn to live it. As we witness the unfolding events of the last days, we cannot doubt that in this scripture 
The Lord is speaking directly to us. We are Israel of the latter days. We are they who must teach our children of Him. Peace that endures is not dependent upon outside forces that are beyond our control. Learn of me. Listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. The Lord's words spoken centuries ago are words of hope and assurance that give comfort to righteous parents who teach their children of Him. They speak to us at a time when peace in the hearts of children can seem but an elusive dream. But the Savior has assured us that it can be a reality if we teach our children. Primary supports parents in this important responsibility. While on a leadership training assignment to Brazil, I had the opportunity to visit a primary nursery class. Approximately eight children were seated around a table with their teacher. I watched in awe as these little ones, two and three years old, sat for a few brief moments, focused in rapt attention, on a picture the teacher was holding of the Savior with the children. I heard her tell them how he loves the children and how he loves each one of them. She taught them that Heavenly Father loves them, too. I watched them listen and I felt that they were understanding much more than I might have thought possible. They were hearing her words and feeling her love. In the beauty and simplicity of those few moments, those children were being taught the answer to life's most important question, Who am I? In their pure, childlike faith, their spirits were receptive to the truths they were being taught. That experience will be repeated for them in their nursery class Sunday after Sunday. These are significant teaching moments in the lives of young children at a time when they are ready to learn. Recent research on the development of a child's brain has revealed new insights into how and when a child learns. I quote from a recent study. From birth, a baby's brain cells proliferate wildly, making connections that may shape a lifetime of experience. The first three years are critical. Is it surprising that our Father in Heaven fashioned the minds of very young children to be so capable of learning at a time when they need to be taught who they are and what they must do? The years from birth to age 10 are the peak years for acquiring the language that will become the foundation for understanding future knowledge and truth. That foundation is formed by the words they hear and the impressions that come to them from the world around them. It's an ideal time for parents to read to their children from the scriptures. They will begin to learn the language of the scriptures. You may have noticed children on their way to primary with their scriptures in hand. Primary children this year are being taught from the scriptures, and they are learning to use them. Our theme for sharing time is, I know the scriptures are true. One Sunday morning, I visited a primary sharing time, 
and I noticed the children had their scriptures open on their laps. The primary presidency and the teachers were helping them find stories of the prophets in their scriptures. I was asked to share a favorite scripture with the children. When I finished, a little four-year-old girl on the front row held up her scriptures and said, That scripture is in my scriptures, too. (laughs) Through the guidance of loving parents and dedicated teachers, small children can become familiar with the scriptures and the spirit that accompanies them. One primary leader shared how grateful she was for this focus in primary. She said that she and her husband read the scriptures to their children ages 2, 3, and 4 every night before they go to bed. I asked her to tell me more. I must admit I questioned that children so young could understand the language of the scriptures. She said that she and her husband had the same doubts when they first began reading with their children. But she said after the first week, the language was not an issue. The children love reading together and feeling the Spirit, and it's amazing how much they understand. A very young child's potential for learning and understanding is far greater than we tend to believe. The exciting possibility is that while children are learning new words daily, they can learn the language of the scriptures. In time, through the guidance of parents and teachers, they will grow in their understanding that Heavenly Father is speaking to them through the scriptures, that the scriptures can help them find answers to their problems. A friend shared an experience she had with her son Alex when their family moved to another location. The move was not easy for Alex. It was difficult for him to go to a new school. He was worried about being away from his home and family, so much so that he didn't want to go to school. One day his mother read the scripture to him found in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. She said, I told Alex how this scripture had helped me many times when I felt afraid. Through her love and by sharing her personal experience with the scripture, she helped Alex overcome his fear. But more important, she made it possible for him to have an experience with the scriptures and to understand how they can be a power in his life. Nephi said, For my soul delighteth in the scriptures, and my heart pondereth them, and writeth them for the learning and the profit of my children. How can we engage our children in learning from the scriptures so that the testimonies of the prophets will make a difference in their lives? We have been counseled to read the scriptures together as families. When scripture reading and sharing is a tradition in our families, then our children are more likely to make it a habit in their personal lives. When our children were young, we felt it was important to establish this tradition in our family. We decided to read the Book of Mormon with the goal to complete the book by the end of the school year. Each morning we read a chapter before breakfast and we reached our goal. While I would not wish to take anything away from the good things that came from that experience for all of us, we reflected in the end that perhaps our focus was more on our goal 
than on what we were learning in the process. In the early morning rush hour that ended at the breakfast table, we had little time to share ideas or ponder on the meaning of God's word in our lives. When the Savior taught the Nephites, he said, Go ye unto your homes and ponder upon the things which I have said, and ask of the Father in my name that ye may understand and prepare your minds for the morrow, and I come unto you again. The Savior has given us a pattern to follow as we study the scriptures. We hear the word. We ponder upon its meaning. We ask our Heavenly Father to help us understand. And then our minds and hearts are prepared to receive the promised blessings. Pondering is more than reading words. It is searching for meanings that will help us as we relate to one another and as we make choices in our lives. It's allowing the word to move from our minds to our hearts. The Spirit bears witness to our hearts as we prayerfully seek to know the things of our Heavenly Father. When we have that witness and knowledge, we think and live and relate to each other in more Christ-like ways. As parents, our children look to us and our example to guide them. When we consistently live what the scriptures teach, we provide them with an anchor that will guide them in discerning truth in a world of conflicting values. With the scriptures as a reference point, we can help them process their experiences and the consequences of their choices. By so doing, we help them keep the eternal perspective always in focus so they never forget who they are and where they are going. The Prophet Joseph was prepared for the work he was to do through divided, devoted, wise parents who loved the Lord. They read from the scriptures and taught their children from them. And so when young Joseph was confused, and needed direction, it was natural for him to go to the scriptures. He said, At about the age of twelve years, my mind became seriously impressed with regard to the all-important concerns for the welfare of my immortal soul, which led me to search the scriptures, believing as I was taught that they contained the word of God. President Hinckley has counseled parents. Read to your children. Read the story of the Son of God. Read to them from the New Testament. Read to them from the Book of Mormon. It will take time and you are very busy, but it will prove to be a great blessing in your lives as well as in their lives. And there will grow in their hearts a great love for the Savior of the world, the only perfect man who walked the earth. He will become to them a very real, living being and his great atoning sacrifice as they grow to manhood and womanhood will take on a new and more glorious meaning in their lives. Brothers and sisters, that glorious promise from our prophet can be ours if we read to our children from the scriptures. There can be no greater joy than to know that our children love the Lord. No greater peace than that which comes when we feel of His love and understand the meaning of His atoning sacrifice. 
That spirit which comes when we share sacred things of the heart will bond us together as families. John expressed it well. I have no greater joy than to know here that my children walk in truth. It is my testimony that this will be our blessing as we follow the counsel of our prophet. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, what a beautiful occasion. What a wonderful day. What a glorious time this is. And for me particularly to have an opportunity to stand here following that stirring declaration and testimony of God's prophet here upon the earth. As he held up that copy of the Book of Mormon, that first one, I thought of an experience we had a few years ago as we attended a mission president seminar. And for the closing dinner and the end of that little get-together for two days in the Palmyra and Fayette area, we held a little closing dinner in the the restricted Peter Whitmer farmhouse where the first meeting was organized, the organization meeting of the church, that beautiful little building. Where that meeting was held, where the church was organized 168 years ago this weekend, it was such a moving occasion. The only cooking arrangement they had in that little farm or that little log cabin was the fireplace. As we looked at the fireplace and with the pot that hanging over it where they did their cooking, They didn't have any of the conveniences of today, of course. There was a well outside for the water. But at the conclusion of that very spiritual meeting with those mission presidents, near the end, I walked up the steps, up the stairs, and looked at those two little bedrooms. The Peter Whitmer family lived there. But they turned one of those, that room, over to the Prophet Joseph Smith. And there he did some of the translating of the Book of Mormon. And there, then Oliver Cowdery joined him later. And there they worked in that humble little setting. And I, my, my heart burned and my, uh, with the wonderful feeling I had of just being in that little farmhouse, and imagining what took place and of the blessings of heaven that had been poured out upon that occasion. And as we left that little meeting that evening and left that little farmhouse, there was a full moon shining down through the trees. And I said to Ruby, I can imagine that on the night of April 6th, 1830, After that small group had assembled, the church had been organized, the six members had signed the necessary papers to 
see that it was recognized under the laws of the state of New York? And of the occasion, what was said, what was prophesied, the future of the Church, the testimonies that would have been born? I said, I would imagine that the night of April the 6th, 1830, the moon was shining, showing that our Savior smiled upon that occasion and upon that setting. And later I said that in a little group. And Brother Chamberlain, who then was the director of the Hanson Planetarium in Salt Lake, heard me say that. And he was thoughtful enough to get in touch with our, uh, of our uh, observatory, Naval Observatory, to find out what might have happened on April the 6th, 1830. They didn't have records back that far, and so he was thoughtful enough to contact in England the Naval Observatory and the records that might have been available over there. And he later sent me some document, document, uh, documentary indicating what was happening in the horizon in that week of April the 6th, 1830, and indicating on there that there was evidence that there was a full moon those days before and after and during the April the 6th, 1830, which I have now as a prized possession, that there was a full moon. The glories of the Lord had been poured out upon the occasion. And I am honored here this morning as we listen to President Hinckley recall those tremendous events and to have had the opportunity during my life to have been taught and to have listened and to have experienced events around the world and in the temples and in the various occasions and meetings that I've, where I've been in attendance and participated in and to have held, felt the spirit of the Lord directing this work, which I testify to you to be true. And as the years march on and moves along, I'm honored to have the opportunity just to add my testimony to that of our great prophet. I received a letter a few days ago from a young man, 19 years old, with the name of Kevin, uh, Kevin uh, Campbell from Juniper, Idaho. And I'm not going to try to tell you where that is, but you can imagine. <laughs> and Brother Kevin wrote to me and said, It has come to my knowledge that you are becoming quite old in your years. And I wanted to write you before you passed on to the other side. How is is life in your old age? I have often wondered about, about that, and so I pose the question to you, how is life? So that I'll know what to expect when I get old like you are. I would say to Kemet Campbell, 
Bless his heart. Life is wonderful. And the only way I can describe it is that I have been blessed all of my life. And I have been blessed with challenges and opportunities and questions and problems and challenges become part of life. But it's been wonderful if we live the simple principles that we have been taught and live the way that we know we should live. And one of those wonderful blessings we have is the blessing of having more time with your children and their children and their children. But to have that opportunity to assemble and to be with them. And just the other night, we had the opportunity to attend a little baptismal service in the ward meeting house where Rachel was baptized, a great-granddaughter. And just a few nights before that, Richard, a little grandson, had been baptized. But as I would had the opportunity to look at them and talk to them and squeeze them and see of that sparkle in their eye and and of the and of the light of the gospel that seemed to fill their fill their heart and soul, and they were so excited about the idea of being baptized and the way their family would have taught them of the principles, and now to be baptized and to become an official member of the church. And little Richard, I remember when I said, Richard, as we shook hands, I said, give me a real missionary handshake. And that with that little eight-year-old hand, he almost squeezed my fingers off as he turned it. And I said, Richard, you'll be a great missionary, just as little Rachel will be a, a great member of the church in her right. And on that same occasion, we had an opportunity to, to stand in the circle and to have young Peter Jr. received the Aaronic priesthood and to hear his father give him the blessings of the priesthood, of the Aaronic priesthood, and for the others, those of us who are older, to stand in the circle and sense the occasion and to feel it and to know that this is part of your family, part of our family. And I would want our family to know as it continues to grow and expands that their fathers, and I use that in the plural, as Helaman used it, the great Book of Mormon prophet Helaman, as he taught his sons about their fathers, of course, including Nephi and, and Lehi, and of their following the word of God and keeping the commandments, and as he taught them, those who left Jerusalem and out into the wilderness and helping bring all of this great story of the Book of Mormon forward, all that we have, that Helaman taught his children that their fathers had, that they had works and that the works were good, as he used that expression. And so I would hope that our own children, as the generations would go on, would know of their heritage, to know who they are, and to know that they had fathers who believed, and they had fathers who were challenged, and they had fathers who had investigated, and fathers who had been out in the world in declaring, but sensing and feeling 
not in just quoting the scriptures, but to feel it in their heart and soul that what we do is true. We've had an opportunity to try to hold on to an old house up in Oakley, Idaho, and to restore it a little so that our children would know of an ancestry or to, but to know that their fathers and that their works were good. And I even hold, able to hold on to the gold watch that my father had given to him by the Oakley First Ward when he was a bishop, given to him in 1905, a year before I was born. But we have part of a little of the heritage that their works were good, and they helped in the rolling forth of this wonderful work. In the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Lord taught as part of that revelation that this is a preface to my commandments. And that little publication that the brethren met there at Hiram, Ohio, 18 months after the church was organized, to pull those revelations together and compile them and to, to, to print and to have available to the people the commandments that the Prophet Joseph had received. But as part of that first declar that first commandment, the first section, the the instructions in there where the Lord told uh, explained how He had given Joseph Smith the power and the inspiration and the direction from heaven to translate the Book of Mormon and to bring the church forth out of obscurity and out of darkness. And just reflect in your minds today what is happening with President Hinckley as he travels the world and as he goes out meeting with people. And when we talk about bringing the church out of obscurity and out of darkness, just think what he is doing out in the world of the press, the media, with people of all types, of how they have an opportunity to see God's prophet and to hear him and to hear him explain and to testify and to explain what has taken place as he has done on the television and in the press and so the large newspapers and the magazines and other publications now have had these favorable stories of course about the church God lives he is our prophet or God lives he is our father I testify to you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the world today would have some real understanding of just the simple Ten Commandments? When the Lord, with his own finger, cut into a tablet so that Moses, when he came down from Mount Sinai to to, to help the children of Israel who were riotous and so that they wouldn't say, oh, you didn't understand what was said. The Lord, with his own finger, cut the words into this tablet so that when Moses brought them down, they would be able to read that when, of the Lord's own statement of, thou shalt, the first commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, but thou shalt have no other gods before me. And thou shalt not make any graven images, something else to worship, but you will love the Lord, you'll love God. And that we would not take the name of, the, of God in vain, not take it in vain. 
that we would honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, that thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Imagine what that would do in the world today and in the United States and with the spin doctors. And thou shalt not steal or bear false witness or covet your neighbor's oxen and farms, his wife or anything that he has. The gospel of our Lord and Savior has been restored to the earth. God lives. He is our Father, I know. Jesus is the Christ. I have heard his voice because I have felt of that spirit as he explains to us. You cannot hear my voice. You cannot see me. But my voice is spirit. I know that is true. Joseph Smith was the restorer and the one who was found and trained and was obedient and was valiant in every way as the instrument of the restoration. And today we have a living prophet upon the world who represents us in such a glorious way throughout the world. Live the commandments. Do what is right. Take advantage of this great opportunity in your life to live it, to be good, to have good works, and to influence other people for good. The gospel is true. I hope that every day of my life I might be able to do some good and to encourage somebody to live a better life and to understand what has been restored to the earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.